You're listening to the greatest multifamily investment advice show. My name is Adam Ross, and now I'm talking everything multifamily for an in-depth conversation, and I will be diving deep into raising capital, deals, and underwriting process. Welcome back to the greatest multifamily advice show. Today, we have Ivan Barrett real estate investor with a significant portfolio on Midwest. Please help me to our help uh, please help me to welcome our guest today. How are you Ivan? Hi Adam, it's good to be here. How are you? Thanks so much for being as with us today and I would like to start on your beginning on multifamily. How was the beginning for you to op- to to say I want to uh, do an actual jump to the commercial real estate? Oh, well, gosh, you know, I, I am pretty lucky. Uh, my dad is an attorney and uh, uh, owned a lot of rental properties on the side. And so early on, I, I got the bug for real estate uh, and always have wanted to own a lot of it. Um, early in my career, I got some great experience from mentors in the marketplace um, and made, it, made a very easy decision to focus on large apartment communities. Basically, um, I happen to think that they are the best return on investment of any real estate asset class uh, versus the risk you're taking. Uh, and so um, from a risk adjusted return standpoint, or what is a great investment in real estate, I think nothing beats uh, multifamily uh, from the returns you can get perspective, but also how much risk you can, uh, you can reduce in multifamily versus some of the other real estate. So uh, your focus is more on multifamily space on the Midwest. You mentioned it's Ohio and Indiana. So can you tell me what was the upside for you to choose, especially was on, on this market, especially was that there's an actual um, direction to invest more on the South, especially on Texas and, and Florida. So what was the upside for you to stay on your markets? Well, here in the Midwest, um, I can find value. So versus some other markets that have become very, I would say, overheated, the Midwest, it doesn't boom, maybe like a Phoenix or some parts of Florida, but it doesn't bust either. It's more steady, uh, consistent growth over time. For example, Indianapolis, my home market, um, average rent growth for 40 years has been about 3%. And I happen to think we can do uh, better than average by buying value add properties where we can uh, get the appreciation forced through uh, reducing costs, right? And, and, and increasing rents. Hmm. And so Midwest, you, you've got some big macroeconomic factors and in, in trends that are, that are um, uh, helping the Midwest. You've got several markets that have for a long time have been looked at as sort of a rust belt or decaying market. Well, uh, you look closer, there's job growth, there's schools, there's good infrastructure. And so some of these markets like in Indianapolis, Columbus, Ohio, Kansas city, like we talked about before the show started, uh, Des Moines, Iowa, um, are growing at a, at a steady clip, even a little bit faster, uh, post COVID as, as people have more choices on where to live. And so I can get assets at a better cap rate where I still know I can add value and exceed returns to my investors um, versus um, some of the more hotter popular markets where, listen, any, any market, it's hard to find a great opportunity, right? There's, mm. there's lots of assets to buy, but very few good opportunities. 
uh, here in the Midwest, it's, it's a little bit maybe easier to find the, the really great opportunities. I think one of the things that's happening right now is, uh, as you mentioned, the market fundamentals and with uh, a lot of net immigration to the South, I see a lot of potential also in the Midwest. One of them is uh, the compressed cap rate is bitter on, on the Midwest, uh, bitter than the South states. Uh, yeah. But uh, right now, how you see the impact of the compressed cap rate on both uh, uh, type P and type C products? Well, I wouldn't know about type C right now, um, except from what I, I, a little bit of what I see, we are typically buying newer institutional quality assets that still have a, a value add component. Hmm. Um, I guess one way I could answer that, Adam, is the, the pricing we were seeing on C and B property got so close to, the, to a similar cap rate that I could pay for an A property that it made more sense to um, buy something newer uh, for just a little bit more money where I still know I can add a return, but where I'm taking far less risk in um, having to say, turn over a whole, a whole community of residents, um, fixing functionally obsolescent or deferred maintenance, those sorts of things. So as, as I saw a lot of, players enter that C and B market, hmm. I found more alpha by being able to uh, start the fund um, and target much larger institutional quality assets. Hmm. Um, need a lot more equity for those deals, but there's a lot fewer competitors um, from time to time as well. So you're more, more uh, doing like an actual transition to the A products. Uh, we've been buying what I would call A and A minus um, assets now for a few years. Uh, typically, we're not buying anything anymore older than 2000. In fact, most of my vintage targets I'm looking for now are anywhere from 2010 to 2020. It's more because of the inventory on the Midwest, uh, because of the actual expenses on the maintenance, or just as you mentioned, there's no much spread between the B and A. Um, it's a combination of both those. It's a great question. You know, our job is to find returns, to find value and take as little risk as possible. Hmm. And so every year it, it, it's, um, it really comes down to finding that, that opportunity or that gap in the market where you can get the most amount of return or highest level of confidence in your returns, right? Nothing's guaranteed, but you want to have a high degree of confidence that you can hit your target. Hmm. Um, well, again, while taking little risk. So in a vacuum or in a nutshell, if I've got two assets and if everything um, goes according to plan, you know, I'll make say a 20% IRR on a five-year hold. Hmm. Um, one of them is built in 1980 and one of them is built in 2000. And that's the only variable that I'm going to buy the newer asset hmm. um, than, than buying the older one. And like it, you said, like you alluded to, you know, the spread or the price between those two assets is, is fairly compressed. We talked about here about one of the things about the upside of the Midwest. Can you tell me that, about more about the challenges on the Midwest? and how you see that there's an actual risk mitigation to this market, especially 
because more your experience on your market, as you mentioned, you've been 20 years on the market. So you know where is the actual gap on the market? Well, this is agnostic to markets, but the best way I can answer your question is that the, the risk is really in the execution on, on any deal uh, as an investor or a limited partner and or a sponsor in my case, the real risk comes down to uh, being able to execute your business plan to be able to manage that asset effectively. And, and that's why at BAM, I started a property management company first before I started syndicating deals. Mm. Uh, so that I could I could minimize uh, that sort of risk in any market. You know, you 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 have to be disciplined about what you buy. Mm. Disciplined acquisition criteria is the most important thing, and I think right now um, you're going to start seeing some assets where people shouldn't have paid what they paid for them. Mm. Uh, some skinny deals are gonna are gonna come back to the market. And I think you're going to see some investor equity dry up. You're going to see other investors uh, making more returns now than they have in the past because of the opportunities that are that'll be created uh, because of the volatility in the market. Yeah, on the last two three years, I think this is what you mentioned as overpricing, overpricing all of the properties, having a lot of new syndicators on the market was not a healthy environment and as you mentioned all of this is going to happen what's going to happen is potentially all of this deal is going to potentially come to the market especially because of the new interest rate which is as an impact of the recession back to this point how you see the well you won't you won't see and you won't many of these things you won't see hit the market adam um you'll see lenders going directly to their good owner operators that know how to turn around a problem Mm. uh, and those folks will be taking over those assets on behalf of the lender um, which won't likely lose money uh, because leverage is down. Um, it'll be the, unfortunately, it'll be the LPs and the, um, the sponsors that um, um, were maybe too impatient or didn't have enough discipline to pass on skinny assets. You, I think you're, you're mentioning to the bridge loans when the actual, uh, the position is going to go back to the lender himself whatever it's a private equity or a private uh, or private lender bridge loan, correct? Uh, correct in the most part. I mean, there's, there's some specificity in there or some, um, some nuance you, because you've got bridge lenders that, that, that are good lenders, right? That, that are good partners. And you've got on the other side of the spectrum, you've got loan to own bridge lenders who are hoping sponsor fails. And when, uh, when markets turn, uh, it starts becoming pretty obvious who those loan to own sponsors, or excuse me, lenders might be. Uh, this is one of the things that's what, uh, what everyone is waiting for, I think, on, on the recession turnover. But how you see the impact right now, uh, because we opened the subject of recession and the impact of recession on the multifamily space, especially that we see so far that all of the market fundamental is still strong of all, most of the markets. But the problem is, as you mentioned, is how this deal has been structured based on uh, lower interest rate. So right now, how you see the impact far from this, uh, for how you see the impact of the recession on the flow of deals? I'm seeing more deal flow than I have um, since 2020. So right now it smells a little bit like the beginning of COVID when um, I, I was able to transact some of the best deals of my career because a lot of 
People paused and thought that a big crash was coming. Hmm. I am um, not saying a big real estate crash is coming, but it is creating some opportunities on the buy side of the market. Um, nothing uh, like 2008, but I, I am seeing more reasonable pricing, more opportunities and fewer bidders for those opportunities because right now, um, so for example, you know, we're looking at a, an asset that's call it 65 million um, to, um, uh, to purchase that asset. And our leverage on that deal is going to end up being maybe 60%. Oh. So that's a, that's a pretty big equity check that I've got to raise in order to close on that deal. And how I can do that is finding assets where I, I know I can reduce costs, but also grow rents significantly. Um, in order to still drive home those returns with, with more equity and less leverage. So there's always these different variables moving in the marketplace, right? And, and it's my job as the, uh, uh, I'll use a sports analogy here, you know, the quarterback, I've got I've to play the game that I'm being given versus trying to force too much of a playbook. Every year, every quarter, I've got to throw out the playbook and go, okay, what is the market doing right now? Where are we at in the cycle? And what are the opportunities? Because there's opportunities in every part of the cycle. If I am disciplined enough to figure that out and stick to that plan. The one thing I can't change, Adam, is what I pay for a property. So yeah. I better be darn sure that I'm getting it for a price where I've got a high degree of confidence in hitting my returns. Otherwise, my number one asset, my track record, suffers and my ability to raise capital in the future suffers. I think you open a, a really good subject here, which is basically the impact of recession on having a, an actual uh, preferred returns on your deals. How do you see this on your deals? Are you still working on the same strategy with the same returns? Or you think uh, right now we are on, on the actual cycle, whereas the sellers have to lower their expectation on the price wise? Um, we still target similar returns that we've always targeted. Hmm. We are seeing more sellers, uh, recognizing that the price they thought that their property was worth four or six months ago is not a price they can get in, in today's market. Hmm. Um, I would say we've gone back from um insanity which would be you know sub three cap rates hmm. um in certain areas back up to a, a a normal uh cap rate it still really comes down to what can me and my team um do to the property to drive returns so preferred yeah. returns haven't changed because the the types of assets we're buying haven't changed um, cash flows in the beginning certainly are, are going to be less than they might've been in the past. Mm. So it's even more paramount to find, uh, deals where we're highly confident in the ability to increase that, that valuation, which, you know, every dollar I save, if it's a low cap rate environment is a much higher multiple on sale. So it's just, it, there's, there's some balance to it and different investors have different appetites for different types of uh, investment.
So what is the current uh, cap rate you're working on right now on the Midwest, especially based on, on Indiana, especially? On well, Adam, one of, one of my mentors, it's like one of my mentors told me a long time ago, and I'm happy to share with you this little secret I learned a long time ago. Yeah. I don't care what the cap rate is. Now, there's some caveats to that. I care less about what the cap rate is, right? I care more about what I can do with that asset after I close on it and bring in my management team and new capital. I care what the cap rate is in the second year, the third year after I start executing my business plan. Yeah. And I care more about having a high degree of confidence that I can return two to two and a half X to my investors hmm. uh, on a three to five year window. I think this is a really high returns right now, especially on the market right now is multi, uh, multi equity multiplier to two and a half is really competitive on the market. Uh, and as you mentioned, yeah, but just, just to answer that, you know, a little bit, a little bit further, I, I bought an asset um, recently that the seller thought he was selling to me at a three cap. Okay. Oh, I actually bought it at four and a half because of what I know I can run it for. And I was able to go in immediately and, and reduce a lot of expenses that, that didn't need to be there. Uh, and then further, I knew by buying that, that I could raise rents um, immediately on lease turnover, not, not everyone at once, but as leases turned over, I knew I could raise rents at least $100 a door hmm. just, just by bringing the leases up to market, not even making any physical improvements. That was a great deal for us. So as you mentioned, your focus always on adding value even in, in the market of um, class A, which is bringing you to the point of how you can increase the net operation income. And one of the things you said is to bring the even without adding any value to the market value of uh, the leases. Um, one of the things you mentioned that you're working right now on the fund, I think your current structure is more like a fund or more like a syndication. We're on our third fund. Um, this one, let's see, fund one was about 50 million. Fund two is about 75 million. And on our third fund, it uh, can go up to uh, 125. So what was the upside for you? And what was the actual uh, progression make you to start on uh, structured funds on, on your multifamily deals? Why did I go from a syndication single asset raise <laughs> to a fund raise? Yeah. Especially as this is a, 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 a Bruce and cons for your investor, especially when you are dealing with syndication or fund. But what I see is basically that you, I think you find that it's more flexible and beneficial for your business model to go with a fund, correct? Yeah. So, um, so first and foremost, going from a syndication, uh, a single asset syndication to multiple asset syndication, which is all a fund really is. Yeah. That was one of the hardest things I've ever done because I literally had to speak to every single investor hmm. and walk them through um, the advantages to me as a sponsor, which are several, but also the advantages, advantages to the, the limited partner as well. Hmm. Um, some of mine are, are pretty easy. I get a longer runway of raising capital. I've got a bigger pile of, uh, of ammunition when a, a big institutional deal comes along. Um, so when we, when we have to raise 20, 30, 40 million in 60 days, um, I've already been raising for a while by the time that deal comes along. So it, it, um, it allows me to just always be raising capital. So it's much more efficient for the team. And then for the investor, instead of putting their 50,000 or their 5 million or $10 million, 
uh, into one project. They're spreading it out across a portfolio of assets, which um, lowers their risk profile overall and gives them a higher probability of a higher return because nobody knows out of five or six assets in a fund, which one's going to be a home run or a triple or a single or a double. Um, but what happens is they get, at, they get exposure to all those assets. And so if one does okay, it doesn't really pull down the return too much. And if a couple do really well, it pulls up the overall return uh, for everyone. So there's, there's a lot of advantages to it. If, if you're a syndicator and you're listening to this, I would say um, the easiest way to, to really get into the fund game is to first have a good track record in the single asset space. Hmm. Um, but raising funds eventually um, makes the whole machine just hum a little bit better, if that makes sense. Let me tell you, uh, uh, you mentioned something about raising capital, and I want to focus on that. How was uh, your um, actual progression on dealing with investors and uh, family offices and e private equity firms? What was the actual your approach when you're raising capital, especially when you're dealing with $125 million uh, funds? Uh, is going to be easier to deal with uh, family offices with back checks than dealing with 150 thousand check was uh, qualified or uh, qualified investors. What was the actual uh, uh, plan for you when you started to raise capital for a bigger fund than your initial funds? Um, I, I think I know what you're asking. So I don't work with private equity companies. I built my own private equity platform. Okay. We raise all our capital um, a little over 300 million now, all from individual high net worth investors. Oh. And that's, that's everyone from somebody who's just maybe net worth a little over a million mm. and they're putting in $50,000 um, to some of our larger family office type um, uh, individuals or families mm. that have hundreds of millions of dollars in net worth and are allocating a percentage of that to, to my team um, and everything in between. I think so dealing with family offices is different than dealing with, with investor, of course. It's more uh, the structure itself of uh, submitting or presenting the deal is, or the fund is different, but um, it's easier than dealing with private equity um, fund. As you mentioned, you already have your already private equity fund. I want to ask about more about a fun question here or a fun question about how you describe your superpower. My superpower? Yes. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> great question, Adam. Um, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, my superpower these days is, is the team that I've, that I've been able to build, uh, build over the years. Um, they deserve so much credit for what we've been able to execute now. Um, I think, um, I'm pretty good at creating vision, pretty good at, 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 uh, telling a story and getting, getting confidence from my investors. Um, I've raised a lot of equity myself, one, one meeting at a time. Um, and luckily I've been able to find great people um, to surround myself with that are much smarter than I am in, in many, many areas of, of um, many required areas to, to be successful in, in running an enterprise. Um. I have a question always I like to ask my guests about the mentorship. What was the really lesson you learned from your mentors 
it's really uh, help you to scale a lot and or scale uh, your business faster than um, than expected. Yeah, you know, we could spend a three-hour podcast on that. We, we could <laughs> we could talk we could talk forever about that. I I would say that in the short amount of time we have left, my my greatest um, one of my greatest pieces of advice. Uh, would be to not only seek out mentors, um, but if you would like rocket fuel in, in growing your own business, um, you need two things. You need to be in peer groups of other like-minded individuals. Some of my best peer groups um, were through uh, EO, Entrepreneurship Organization, uh, because you're in a peer group with other entrepreneurs in vastly different businesses, not just real estate. And being, in, being around other entrepreneurs, doing things in different industries and, and learning how they're doing what they're doing um, has been greatly applicable to my own business and added a lot of value. Hmm. Um, and then marrying that with, with coaching in any area of my life where I'm trying to improve, whether it's my marriage uh, or, or being a better father or my fitness, uh, especially running, a, running my business and running a team, um, I've got a coach in that area that I'm talking with on a regular cadence hmm. uh, or, or, or working out with if it comes to training um, that, that's helping to keep me accountable and, and bringing a lot of experience um, and wisdom to the table. And so if, you know, I get that question a lot, what would I do differently if I could go back in time? Hmm. Um, and the one answer that I, I usually is first place for me would be to have uh, coaching and peer groups as part of my formula uh, early. I figured that out in my early 30s. Uh, but if I could go back and tell my 21-year-old self that, uh, that's what I would do. Thanks so much for your uh, being with us today. And the final question will be, how the people can follow your success? Sorry? How How the people can follow your success? Oh, I'm easy to find. Uh... Let's see, my name is right down there at the bottom, Ivan Barrett. Uh, if you Google that or Google BAM Capital or uh, multifamily syndication, I usually come up pretty close to the top, but we're on, we're on all the things. Thanks so much for being with us today and we're really happy to bring you again to talk more about the, your success on multifamily space. Thanks a lot. You bet, Adam. Thanks for having me.